As we look at our passage this morning, Luke will tell us a great deal about who this baby Jesus is. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. In our text this morning, we'll see four truths about baby Jesus. The first is that Jesus is the Son of God. Look there in verses 1 and 2 of our passage, and we read these words, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So Luke is an historian. We know this from his record of the Gospel of Luke, also his writings in the book of Acts. Uh, he's very concerned about particular places and individuals and times in which events took place. He writes like an historian. And here, to begin with, Luke places the birth of Jesus in the context of world history. And he tells us about Caesar Augustus here, who was the ruler of the Roman Empire at this time. Caesar's, Caesar Augustus' real name was Cassius Octavius. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. And in 27 BC, so this was about 30 years before Jesus was born, Octavius, or Caius Octavius was acknowledged as the head of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Senate actually voted to give him the name Augustus, which means majestic or venerable or honorable one. He was also, being a very significant figure, he was also the first emperor of Rome, consolidating all power to himself and the Roman Empire. But this was not enough for him. Caesar Augustus, it was not enough for him to be the first Roman Empire or emperor. It was not enough for him to have the name Augustus, honorable or venerable. Caesar Augustus wanted to be a god. He wanted to be identified as one among the gods. And so early on in his reign, he saw his opportunity and he seized it. One historian actually writes regarding these events, quote, early in his reign, he's referring to Caesar Augustus, early in his reign, a comet, Halley's Comet, passed over Rome. Augustus claimed that it was the spirit of Julius Caesar, his great uncle, entering into heaven. And if Caesar was a god, he being an heir of Caesar, Augustus must be a son of a god. And he made sure that everybody knew it, end of quote. So here is this figure, Caesar Augustus, the honorable one, the venerable one, the first Roman emperor, the son of a god, at least by his own claims. And we see something of the extent of his reign as well in verse 1. It says that Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be registered. Now, of course, that doesn't mean every single individual person living in that time in the entire world, but this was a common way of speaking during that time because the Roman Empire was so vast that it seemed when the Roman Empire issued a decree or took an action, it impacted the entire world. And here we see something of the power of Caesar Augustus that when he speaks, it's almost as though the entire world yields themselves to his beck and call. And Luke tells us that it is at this time when Caesar Augustus, the son of a god who ruled and reigned over the entire world, it was at this time that Jesus was born. 
This is especially uh, significant when you consider the prophetic words that the angel spoke to Jesus' mother Mary back in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 35. There the angel speaking to Jesus' mother Mary said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and He will be called, here it is, Son of the Most High. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon Him, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see, for political advantage and for personal glory, Caesar Augustus had made the claim that he was divine, that he was the son of a God. But Luke wants us to know that it was during his reign, during the reign who claimed to be the son of a God, during the reign of the one who would speak and it seemed like the whole world beckoned to his call. It was during his reign that the true son of God was born into the world. Jesus Christ. The second thing we see from our text this morning is not only is Jesus the Son of God, but Jesus is King. We see this in verses 4 through 5. I'll start in verse 1. We read, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So Luke records for us in verse 4 that Joseph, the father of Jesus, was of the house and lineage of David. Now, of course, David was the great king of Israel. He had ruled in Israel and was the kind of exemplary king of the nation of Israel. He was the greatest king, you might say, that Israel ever had. And he reigned some thousand years before Jesus was born. But God had promised David in his lifetime, God had made a promise to David that he would have a descendant who would rule and reign on his throne forever. Luke tells us here that Joseph was the son of David. He was of the house and lineage of David. Now, of course, Luke records for us earlier in this account that Mary was a virgin at the conception of Jesus. So Joseph, in that sense, was not Jesus' biological father. However, Jesus, although he was not Joseph's physical descendant, he was Joseph's descendant by adoption. He was legally Joseph's son and therefore of royal descent through Joseph, an heir to the throne of David. You know, as we had Stephen's story here this last week and he was preaching for us and he's the executive director of Covenant Care Services, a Christian adoption agency, and we're so thankful for that ministry and love that ministry and support that ministry. We're reminded here in the birth of Jesus of the beauty of adoption. That although Jesus was not the physical heir of Joseph through adoption, he had all the legal rights of the son of Joseph and was heir to the throne of David. 
He held all the rights and privileges of Joseph's natural descendant. And when Luke briefly mentions in verse 4 that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, he wants us to remember. He wants us to remember the prophecy. He wants us to remember the angel's announcement that he had made to Mary back in chapter 1. The angel said to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be called Son of the Most High. Here it is. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now this is remarkable when this claim was made, when, this, when the angel spoke this word to Mary, because at this time in human history, there had not been a king to rule and reign on David's throne for centuries. In fact, it seemed that the house of Israel, the house of Judah, was, had been forsaken forever. Would there ever be a king on the throne, on David's throne again? But Luke records for us here that it's during the reign of the great Caesar Augustus, during the reign of the first emperor of Rome, that a king was born, a Davidic king, who was king of kings and lord of lords, and Caesar Augustus' reign in just a few years would come to an end. But the reign of this king would last forever and ever and ever and would know no end. Jesus is king, king in the line of David, a king who would rule forever. The third thing we see here in our passage regarding the person of Jesus, not only is he the son of God, not only is he king, but Jesus is promises fulfilled, promises fulfilled. Look there in verses 4 and 5, and we read these words, and Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now here, what we want to focus on is not so much that he is, Jesus is the descendant of David, but the birthplace which Jesus, where Jesus was born. We're told here in our passage that Joseph and Mary traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, Nazareth to Bethlehem was a journey of about 80 to 90 miles. They would have been traveling on foot. And so the journey probably took them four days to a week. And it wasn't until their journey was complete, this four-day-to-a-week journey was complete, that they arrived in Bethlehem and that Mary gave birth to this child. Now, Luke records all the specifics of this in our passage, in particular the birthplace of Jesus, because it is significant. Luke identifies here Bethlehem as the city of David. Now, why would he identify Bethlehem as the city of David? Well, because this is the place where David himself was born. This was the city which was identified with David. We know from the Old Testament Scriptures in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that the prophet Samuel, the first time he met David, was when he went to Bethlehem. And it was there that he met David, and it was there that he first anointed David to be king of Israel. And in the very next chapter, in 1 Samuel 17, we read in 1 Samuel 17 of young David defeating the great giant Goliath. 
And we see that this young David has the faith and the courage to be the king of Israel and to lead God's people. But it's in that chapter that repeatedly David is referred to as David the Bethlehemite. David the one from the city of Bethlehem. You see, over and over again, David is identified with his birthplace of Bethlehem. And so by association with Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus is related to the life and reign of King David. David was born in Bethlehem. Now Jesus is being born in Bethlehem. But the birthplace of Bethlehem is not only significant because of its association with King David, but because of a direct and specific prophecy that we read in the Old Testament that the future king, the future Messiah, the future uh, the one who would in the future rule and reign over Israel would be born in Bethlehem. So in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we read, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now catch that. What, what the Lord is saying here is Bethlehem is so small that it's almost not worth mentioning among all the other various communities and towns in Judah in the nation of Judah. This is not like New York City or Paris where, you know, well, a lot of people are born there. Or a lot of important and significant people are born there. No, this is little insignificant Bethlehem. That small little community. The Lord says, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of, of the name of the Lord his God. Now listen, this is remarkable. Consider this. This was a passage that was written by the prophet Micah some 650 years before Jesus was born. 650 years before Jesus was born. And, and how did all this come about? Well, you have, this, you have this man Joseph who is of the house and lineage of David. And his son has royal blood because of his adoption of the Son. But, but this Son, if He is to be the Messiah, if He's to fulfill the prophecies, He must be born in Bethlehem. But they're from Nazareth, which is some 90 miles away. So how is all this going to happen? How is all this going to come together? Well, the God of the universe will simply just move upon the heart of Caesar Augustus, moving him to issue a decree, a, a census, and to unwittingly push Joseph and Mary some 90 miles south into Bethlehem so that when Mary gives birth, at the moment she gives birth, she arrives into the city of Bethlehem and fulfills the prophecy of Micah chapter 5. It's remarkable. And listen, my friends, if you're, not, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you're not following Him, if you haven't given your whole heart and life to Him, I wonder, what do you do with prophecies like this? How do you account for this? Such a clear and remarkable and even miraculous fulfillment of prophecy regarding the person of Jesus Christ. 
You know, we read in the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul repeatedly, when he would go to cities, he would use this method of sharing Jesus. And in sharing Jesus, he would point people to the prophecies of the Old Testament and then show them how in Jesus those prophecies were fulfilled. And over and over again we read in city after city after city, many were persuaded and believed in Jesus. How about you? Are you persuaded? And if not, why not? And how do you account for these prophecies? If you are persuaded, what will you do about it? This Jesus demands, who has fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament, who claims to be the Son of God, who claims to be King, the the long-awaited King of Israel, who will rule and reign forever, this Jesus demands everything from us. We would trust Him. That we would follow Him with all our lives. He is King. He has promises fulfilled. He is the Son of God. Fourth, we see that Jesus is humble. Look in verses 6 and 7 and we read these words. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And there's a number of things we see in our passage that point to the humility of Jesus, but one of the things we see here is that it's the humility of Jesus that drives Him to be born in a manger. A manger was a feeding trough for animals. Most of us know that. But given the fact that Jesus was placed in a manger, it is most likely that He was born in a stable or a cave that was used for stables, a a place where animals would be kept. And so here we see that the Son of God who eternally existed with the Father in perfect love and fellowship and unity and oneness humbles Himself, humbles Himself to the point of being born among animals and being placed in a feeding trough. And why? Why does this happen? Well, we see there in verse 7, it was because there was no place for them in the end. And right here in the birth of Jesus, we see a theme that will go throughout His entire life. It's this theme of alienation, this theme of estrangement. There's no place for Him. There's no room for Him. Why did Jesus embrace this alienation, this estrangement? Well, one of the reasons is because Jesus was not born just to come and be among us, but Jesus was born and He came to identify with us. In a world that is marked by estrangement, by broken relationships, by loneliness and hardship and pain, Jesus chooses to be born in a stable. He doesn't choose to be born in a palace in Rome, which would have been very fitting, right? He doesn't choose to be born in the court of Herod. He doesn't choose to be born even in the temple in Jerusalem, which would seem very fitting for the Messiah to be born there. He doesn't even choose to be born in an inn in the small town of Bethlehem. No. The place that He chooses to be born is in a stable, in a place among animals, and placed in a feeding trough. And why? So with integrity, he can say, I know what it is like to be poor. 
I know what it is like to be marginalized. I know what it is like to be isolated and to be alienated. Jesus, in that sense, has come in order to identify Himself with us and to persuade us, to convince us, to show us that He is not indifferent to our pain. He is alienated and estranged from us in His birth so that He might truly be with us and know us and know our suffering. You know, Christmas is a very joyful time for many people, and it should be especially as we think about gathering together with family and celebrating and remembering the birth of our Savior. But Christmas can also be a very lonely time for folks. It can be a time in which we are reminded of broken relationships or the death of a loved one or distance from family or perhaps the disappointment of promises or dreams unfulfilled. I know our church, actually, we have a lot of singles in our church, and Christmas can be a very difficult time for singles as you see families getting together and married couples and children, and you wonder, even in coming to church, is there a place for me here? And let me just say there is, absolutely. I'll also say that during this Christmas time, whatever pain you might be experiencing, whatever loneliness, whatever alienation you might feel, that Jesus came and came in such a way to communicate to you that He knows, He knows your pain and your loneliness. He came to identify with you in your brokenness. That He is truly Emmanuel, God with us. Not only was Jesus alienated and estranged in His birth so that He might identify with us, but Jesus, He embraces this life of alienation. He embraces this life of estrangement in order that ultimately He might save us from our sins. The author of Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. And listen to the author of Hebrews. He says, for the bodies of those animals, and he's talking about the sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament, okay? So animals were sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. And speaking of those sacrifices, the author of Hebrews says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So... Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Let me quickly explain to you what's happening here. The author of Hebrews is picking up on directions that Moses had given to the people of Israel in the Old Testament regarding the sacrifices they were to offer for their sins. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 27, we read, and the bull for the sin offering, and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come back into the camp. You see, in the Old Testament, inside the camp represented a place that was safe, represented a place that was clean. So the people of God would gather together, they would congregate in the camp. It was basically a, 
a bunch of tents, and this is where they dwelled, and this is where the tabernacle was, where they offered sacrifices to God. And inside the camp was clean. Inside the camp was safe. But outside the camp represented a place that was unclean and was dangerous, separated from the people of God and from the presence of God. And so sacrifices would be offered for sin, but then the blood of those sacrifices that was shed and the carcass of the sacrifice, which included the skin and the flesh and the dung, would have to be carried outside the camp. And someone would carry that outside the camp where it was unclean. And there where they were unclean, outside the camp, that sacrifice, whatever was left of it, would be burnt up. It would be consumed. And then they would have to bathe themselves, wash themselves, make themselves clean so that they could return inside the camp. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this theme, on this idea, and he says to the readers, do you realize that Jesus died when He was crucified? He died outside of the city, outside of the camp at Golgotha. You see, because crucifixions took place outside of the city. Crucifixions were gruesome and barbaric and horrifying. That wasn't something you did where, where you did religious festivity, where religious festivities were held. That wasn't something you did where you were holding family events. That was something you did outside of the city where the dump was, where the trash was, where it was unclean, where it was unsafe. You do that outside of the city. And the author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus went outside of the city, that He was estranged, that He was alienated, that He was cut off from the land of the living, estranged from God and from us. And why? So that He might bear our penalty. So that He might bear the punishment for our sins. So that He might endure the alienation that we deserve for our sin. So that through faith in Him, we might be brought back to God. Reconciled to God. And so that He might truly be with us. In relationship with us. Restored and renewed. Jesus says, I will go outside of the city. I will be estranged from God and from you in order that I might truly be with you. And even in His birth, we begin to see the signs of this. There was no room for Him in the end. He had come to be estranged. He had come to be alienated. He had been come to be cut off from the land of the living that He might redeem us and save us. In recording an accurate narrative of the birth of Jesus, Luke wants us to know who this Jesus is. And through these verses, Jesus, Luke actually alludes to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is King. That Jesus is promises fulfilled. That Jesus is humble. And that in His lavish grace and mercy, He has come to make a way so that we might be reconciled to God. My friends, this Christmas season, may we truly understand the significance of Christmas, of who this baby Jesus is. May we trust Him as Savior, yield to Him as Lord, and follow Him with all our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for
the coming of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pause now for a moment as we have considered Your Word to worship Him as the one true Son of God. The great King of Israel whose kingdom will know no end. King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who fulfilled all the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament that in Him all your promises are yes and amen as the Apostle Paul says. And we worship and praise King Jesus for His humility. That although He deserves eternal praise and worship and adoration forever and ever and ever, He was willing to humble Himself and become a baby, become a man, and to die, even die a death on a cross. So that we might know You and be reconciled to You. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Son, the Lord Jesus. As we come to a time of communion now, we pray that we would continue in a spirit of worship as we consider Jesus and His broken body and shed blood on our behalf. As we consider the sacrifice that ultimately He was willing to make to redeem us and to bring You glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.